we're going to look at Genesis 16 and 17 with a goal to get to Galatians 4. Uh, now, not every verse. <laughs> I heard somebody take a gulp down here. Uh, um, I may not get it done, and we'll tackle it next week. But it's, it's so fun to study the Old Testament and see it flushed out in a Christological understanding in the New Testament. And these particular passages uh, that we're in right here really have significance, how Paul teaches on the doctrine of justification, how one is still under bondage if you mishandle justification, and how one is free if you accept Christ's justification. So it's a fascinating parallel that the Paul does in there, so we want to look at that tonight if we're going to get there. But the events of 16 and 17 are amazing events, and they're, they're something as we'll look at, we'll see ourselves in here. We'll see straight times where we have great faith and our, we trust the Lord and yeah, let's go, and then there's times we go, I don't know what God's doing, so we're just going to have to pick up the mantle ourselves. We'll see that happen a lot in our own lives, and you'll see that in the text today. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the word and worship. <laughs> we get to experience both of those tonight. Um, we saw truths of your word in the songs as we sang, and as we study, we also worship. And so, Lord, we are grateful for that. We know that the veil must be taken away for us to see that, to understand that. And so we give you praise for our salvation and for clarity and understanding of the Word of God. Thank you for your spirit that works in our lives, Lord. Now teach us great things about you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's get right into this. I think you have an outline with seven or eight points or something on that. We'll see how well we do here. But let's jump into this right away. First, God's perfect covenant and human unbelief. And what a mixture of that as you think about that. So as we think about what we've learned so far, God has chosen Abraham to be the father of, of great nations. We're going to see more of that today, right? He's chosen him to do that. And the seed of Christ, right in these chapters, the seed of Christ was in Abram. The coming Messiah was in his seed, and it would be a blessing to all peoples, chapter 12 told us. In Genesis 15... God made a very personal covenant with Abraham. There he put him to sleep. Um, in the end of the chapter, he reminds him that this covenant is between me and you. I do not want you a part of it, so you're going to go to sleep. And I will pass between uh, these sacrifices affirming my covenant. But before that, he brought him out of his tent, said, Look in the stars, look at the sky, the sky and see the stars in there. If you're able to number them, so shall be your seed. And what he was showing him was, I'm going to do something that's beyond you. You can't even pregnant your wife, so I will do something beyond your ability. And there, the Bible says, that he believed and God credited it, accounted it to him as righteousness in a salvatic way. So there we see probably the time where Abraham truly comes to faith in God alone in that. Now, Abram is simply required by God to trust God, to trust his promises, and accept what God is doing no matter what he sees, right? That's what he's asking him to do. I'm going to do this. You are to believe me and trust me. However, <laughs> much time passes as you enter Genesis 16. In fact, that promise has not been realized, and Abram is now 75 years old, 
since Genesis 12 when he leaves, leaves Canaan. And by Genesis 16.3, as we'll see here, at least 10 years now has passed since this last reminder that he was going to use Abraham to be the blessing to all the world. Now, chapter 14, he has a great victory. He goes out after Lot, takes out those, all those kings. He's blessed by Melchizedek. Um, there again, he receives the blessing of, of a covenant. But he is also there as he works his way down through 14. In, uh, he, in early 15, he begins to seek an alternative way. Okay, God, this is great. You've blessed me. Um, why don't we try Eliezer? A, a servant born in my house belongs to me. Let's try his son. That way we can get this blessing thing done and move forward. But you remember that, that last week God said no. The Lord rejects that request. And he reiterates again that the seed would come only through him. But ten years of waiting was too much for Sarai. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16, 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maiden whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me. This is that terminology. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, Sarai's request of her husband was, in all purposes during this time, socially and legally acceptable at the time. I know that kind of rubs us a little wrong. However, Hagar probably acquired uh, Hagar was probably acquired while she was in Egypt, and she was actually probably Sarai's property. And it was customary in this time for a wife who had a, hand, a handmaiden, and she was barren, that she could give that handmaiden to her husband to bear a child. Um, and so there was customary there. Now, if she has a son, and I'm going to prove this here in a minute, if she has a son after that, that son would receive the higher rank and be received as the firstborn. And everything would go to him. Now, how do we know this? Well, interesting enough, it does, uh, in 1925 to 33, some American excavators, and, uh, not excavators, uh, archaeologists, found a bunch of uh, tablets that dated back to 1600 to 13 BC. Some of the tablets went all the way back to Babel. And on these tablets were customs of how to acquire children who legally become their heirs, and it was well-defined. In fact, it was so well-defined that they began to understand that Sarai and Adam would receive no social stigma for what she, they did in that time. They were well within the acceptable standards of, of what society was doing. <laughs> However, I believe Abraham most likely understood this was not God's intention. This was not what God wanted. This was not the marriage that he presented to Adam and Eve in the garden. And it is not certainly the way God wanted to give him his heir. Now, humanly speaking, think about their situation. It was difficult. Abraham's 85 now and may well not be able to father children for much longer. Possibly, they said to themselves, here's some thoughts I wrote down. If we, if we don't make this happen, we'll miss out on this blessing. Now, now, put your human hat on here for a moment. What God said was massive. <laughs> 
Look to the east, look to the west, look to the north, look to the south. As far as your eye can see, I will give you all of that. We are talking about masses of amount of land and property and, and belongings and peoples and all of that that was, that was promised to them. And so there may have been, these are my thoughts, there may have been that intention to say, if we don't do something about this, we could miss out on this amazing lottery. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you can think about it. And so maybe, maybe they wrestled with that. Maybe Sarai was barren and she was there with plenty of time. She said, look, we've tried. We, we have proof. Uh, we, we still don't have children. And so God's been fairly silent for several years now and he hasn't spoken to us. And, and, and Abraham, it's been 10 years since you've heard from him. So possibly the thinking was that everyone does this in society. This is what society does. It's well acceptable in all of the societies that split off of Babel. So why can't we do this? And maybe, maybe even Hagar was willing to sacrifice not only a fear of being maybe her servant, but also knowing what comes with this home. If this was true, and God was going to give them this massive tract of land and this massive authority and all the finances and all the wealth and livestock that would come with it, uh, this might be pretty cool if I have his kid. And you can see some of the reasoning. And these are some of the things that humanly they may have reasoned with. However, <laughs> though there are many polygamous marriages that we even find recorded in the scriptures, none of them meet God's standards. And I want to just emphasize this for a moment here. It isn't hard to study the scriptures and prove that none of these marriages are really happy. There's always almost, in almost every situation, there's problems. There's massive conflicts. There's babies out of wedlock. There's pregnancies from affairs. They never seem to work out in the Bible. There's, there's just great amount of difficulties that come with them. But each and every time, the circumstances of life become more difficult as a result of not trusting the Lord. And though God, in his merciful way, not, not associated with the sin, but yet even uses sinful things to bring about his will, is never pleased with us. And we must remind ourselves, and even, and because even today, we must be careful that society does not dictate the way a believer lives. And, and I, as I studied this again this week, I thought, Lord, there must have been tremendous pressure. This is what's going to happen. This is what you're going to get when this happens. And so that pressure to cave to societal uh, views and the way they did that must have been extreme on them. And then the quietness of God. It's ten years they have not heard from God. And so the result is they gave in. There's only one way to please God is to start to delight in His Word. We delight in His Word. Not in a duty for legalism, but we begin to learn to delight in the Word of God. That's where contentment comes. There, there's a lot of good verses when it, for Christians, I think, when it comes to obeying the Lord or, or believing the Lord when things don't seem to be working out the way uh, maybe we thought they would. Um, this, I think, can go from everything from singleness to, to um, 
uh, 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 not being able to have children, to jobs, to whatever. But, but just think about some of the instructions we th- see through the Bible when it comes about trusting the Lord when we can't quite see what he's doing all the time. Samuel speaks to Saul, you remember when he had not obeyed the Lord. He said, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. It's better to obey God. And now we're talking about Christians here. We're not trying to gain salvation through our obedience. Our obedience is a result of our salvation. But it always is better to obey God. And when you and I decide to do something different than what God has clearly laid out, we will have difficulties. (laughs) It always happens. And it surfaces in our marriages, and it surfaces in our children, and it surfaces in the church, and it surfaces in all kinds of places of life because we chose not to obey. And instead we said, well, I'll do it my way, but I'm still going to go to church because I want God to bless me. And I want God to do these things for me. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due season or due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. That's a great promise by God. Don't lose heart of doing what's good. I, I've used that, that verse with singles who have come into my office through the years and said, you know, I just can't find that person. Am I, is this what God has for me? And, and I'm not, I don't have like a magic, when I graduate seminary, they didn't give me that crystal ball, like, oh, you're going to meet God, you know. What you do is you say, don't lose heart doing what's right. Because you'll never find the will of God doing what's wrong. In fact, you distort a lot of things. So don't lose heart in doing that. Don't grow weary obeying the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Finding the will of God is difficult. It's difficult when you're walking with the Lord, but it's impossible when you don't obey Him. You'll never have confidence that you're where you need to be when you haven't obeyed the Lord. A lot of people come with big decisions to me. They say, well, I'm going to make these big decisions. I go, well, I, I don't know what right and wrong is there. Let's go back and see how things are going in life. Do you're delighting in Christ? Do you delight in his word? Are you walking with him and living with him on a daily basis? Because it's going to be difficult to ascertain what his will is for this big decision you have when you're living in sin. It's going to be very difficult to, for, to show that. Walk with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 6, I love this passage. Write this down and look at this later. 11 and 12. Hebrews 6, 11. Let me just read it to you. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. I thought, man, Lord, that, if that's not where the American church is today, a sluggish church at times. What has the church done for me lately? In fact, there's been some great books written on ecclesiology here lately, just practical books written to the church. One, it's called, I, um, I'm a church me- I Am a Church Member by, help me, Brian, where are you? Um, gosh, it uh, starts with a T. I'll get it in a minute. In, in the basic, the premise, he lays out the premise of the American church, and it's turned into a country club. So the pastors are the waiters. The people come and they tell us what they want and we get it to them. And if we don't, they go somewhere else because that country club over there is better than that one. And the church has turned into that. 
And so the revolving door of people moving from churches and going around isn't about Christ and theology and the gospel and serving one another and being immovable. It's about, hey, this is where I best get served. And so here, the writer of Hebrews is reminding him, don't be sluggish (laughs) and uh, imitate those who have been faithful and patient. So at times, God may test your faith, brothers and sisters. He may test your faith. He may give you directions, but not all the details at times. (laughs) Sometimes he does that to see if we will walk and stay on that path. However, his time, timing and his perspective, they may, uh, uh, his timing and our perspective may clash, but he is perfect in all that he does. So let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. It's the only way you're going to know what God's will is for you. And then be diligent to rightly divide the word of God. Be a workman approved who handles the word great, rightly and God's will will come. That's just some practical application from that. But back to chapter 16, number two, the sin of unbelief complicates life. Look at verses four through six. Now, he went to Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maiden into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her her presence. Now, Sarai's shame of, of being barren now turns to the sin of anger both to Hagar and to her husband, Abram. Hagar seems to willingly submit to this godless plan. She, she was in on it at some level, probably most out of fear for her master, and now feels the anger of her mistress, Sarai. And Abram fails, notice in the text, Abram fails to lead, and in a way throws his hands up at the problem and allows Sarai to compound the broken relationship with Hagar. That's a pretty interesting turn of events. Hagar, the servant, is now honored for bearing children, and Sarai, who becomes bitter, is almost less valued because of her reaction. And that was the whole problem before. I'm I'm less honored because I don't have a child. I'm barren. It's the mark of shame and all those things. And yet, when she stepped outside of the will of God, now things are worse. And so the result is harsh treatment from Sarai to Hagar. Now, As you notice in the text at this point, life in the camp's probably not that fun. Can you imagine walking around in here? Ooh, Hagar's over here, Sarah's over here, Abraham's out checking on the cows. It's a mess. It's a mess. And sin of unbelief has caused this web of problems. Now, Sarai blames Abraham. Notice in the text he blames Abraham because he was the one who got Hagar pregnant. And Abram Abram seems to abdicate his role out of the frustration and delegates justice back to Sarai. Do whatever you seem thinks best. Hagar's going, wait. (laughs) This is your guy's plan. And now the roles that God had gave husband and wife in the garden are completely distorted. And Sarai plunges into a scornful woman and Hagar is driven from her presence 
This is all despite this beautiful covenant display God had given Abram in chapter 15. I'm going to give you a son. Look at the stars. If you can count them, that's going to be the generations from you. Here, I'm going to put you to sleep. I'm going to show these animals. I'm going to pass between this. This is a great covenant's made. Ten years later, this is where we're at. <laughs> and, and look, I am not coming at this judgmental. I go ten days sometimes and not trust the Lord. This is, but the result of our lack of faith often creates great difficulties in our life. One of the greatest prayers that we can pray for ourselves is, Lord, increase my faith. And be willing to say, I don't care what you need to do, but increase my faith. Because where my faith is will be my joy. And my faith is in you. And my faith is in your, my faith is in your son and the word. My joy will be there as well. And, we, and it's, this is something we have to pray for. Because it, 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 is, it is not unlike us to, de, to live faithless stretches of life. Our faith is in our checkbook. Our, our faith is in our relationships with people. And if those fail, all of a sudden, there's strife in the camp. Because our faith was put in the wrong place. Number three, God's mercy and covenant despite the sinfulness of man. Notice seven through nine now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Sur. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maiden, where have you come from? And where are you going? It's, I love the Lord when he does this. He knows what's going on, but it's relational, right? He's having a conversation with her. And she says, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Verse 10, moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I, am, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Now, it's interesting here. We kind of think about the picture that's going on here. Hagar's fleeing. She ends up in this, what seems to be a fairly uninhabitable countryside. Abraham's in Hebron, in that area, which is south of Jerusalem. He's probably west of the Dead Sea. Hagar is found on the way back to Egypt. She's going back to probably to where she was raised, where she became a, a slave or servant to. And she's on the way to Egypt, found in Sur here. So she's on this long track. I looked at the map, and she's probably at least 75 miles from Abraham's camp. It's a long walk. I mean, that's like walking from here to the airport in Orlando. Um, these, they've been out there for a little while. But here in this lonely, desolate place, and I just want you to think about this, this lonely and desolate place, the angel of the Lord meets her there. You ever been in a lonely and desolate place in life? And I think this is probably, my thoughts, and I think I'm in good company with this, I think this is probably the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, there's an article before the angel, the angel of the Lord, so I, I think it's probably our pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ appearing here. And the angel of the Lord gives her direction, and he gives encouragement to Hagar, and she secures the legacy of her son Ishmael. But in all of that, it extends the nations that will come from Abraham. And this is interesting. This was, this was a, a total human effort. But in it, it fulfills even what God promised, that he would be the father of, what, one nation? Many nations. And again, you know this is where Islam um, and 
Judaism split ways. This is as far as they go with our Bibles in this passage here. They believe that Ishmael deserved everything that Abraham got, and that's why we have the great uh, distinctions between those religions today, both, both works-based religions and lost. But this is where they go astray. But here's Hagar. Look at verses 10. Um, 10, 11, down through 12, the angel of the Lord said, I will greatly multiply your sentence so that there will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, Further, behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of man, and his hand will be against everyone. <laughs> Interesting. And everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Very descriptive of the Islamic, Islamic nations um, even to this day. And this, this is where they have their claims to this. And for thousands of years, they've warred against Israel. And this is the prophecy that this would happen. Your hands will be against them and their hands against you, even to your brothers. And the word Ishmael here means God hears. And so God was listening to this. And he is very much uh, here showing compassion to Hagar and Ishmael. This is also tied to the promise that all these nations would be worshipers of God. I don't have time to go there, but I was reading Isaiah 19 today. And there at the end of 19, there's this great promise of the return of these nations to worship God someday. Um, and all the nations will worship the Lord. And as I thought, as I think historically, and I think about the context of this text, back to Moses writing it, back to the nation of Israel on the border of Canaan to go in there, I even think there's some hope in there, even with the nations that come from Ishmael. And I got thinking a little bit about this. Um, I thought, well, would that bring comfort to you, knowing that though most of those people are godless people that they're about ready to wipe out, and Moses has highlighted that through Genesis, that they are wicked people, but there are people that will be worshipers of the Lord. And we see that promise throughout the, the scriptures. And, and G and I were talking about today, and I said, well, who could we name right off the bat? And the first one that came to mind is Rahab. The first city that they go in and take, there is one rescued out of, which would be sons of Ishmael, which are sons of Abraham. In the first city, there is somebody rescued out of that or puts her faith in God and ends up in the lineage of Christ. And so here where man has really screwed things up, God is still in it, still bringing about his will. And it's mind-boggling to kind of think about that for a little while and think, how does he do that? And yet, God is gracious and continues to draw people to himself. There's a spring there, and he names the, she names the well after God, a well that was named after him who sees and lives in verse 14. And this area later becomes, I think, the, about the northern border of where Ishmael and his mom set up camp. For the covenant promise through the change of names. Oh boy, we're going to have to jump into this. We're going to get halfway through this tonight. Um, hang on to your notes for next week. Um, 17, 1 and 2, let's jump down there. Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between you, between me and you, and, my co and, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Now, the biblical narrative here, you think the last jump was difficult. This is about 13 years now from 17, from chapter 16 to chapter 17 here. Notice at the end of uh, 16, verse 16, 
Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. Chapter 17, verse 1 um, it doesn't take us long to figure out that he's 99 years old in the first couple of uh, phrases here in the text. So now 13 years have passed. Um, he's 99 years old. Um, and here is the fourth time, I believe, I think I counted them right, the fourth time God appears to him and commissions him uh, to this great covenant that God's going to give him since he left the Chaldees. And in verse 1, God's name is called El Shaddai. It's the first time it appears in the scripture here. And he translates it for us. It says, I am God Almighty. There it is. It's used 47 more times in the Old Testament, most of them in Job. Put the correlation there together, right? Where this, this name for God in a very difficult situation where he reminds Job, I am God Almighty. And so at this proclamation of God's self-proclaimed omnipotence, says, look, I'm God Almighty. He reestablishes this covenant. And in verse 3, we see Abraham hit the deck. Verse 3, look at it with me. Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him. Verse, verse 4, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You know where his mind's going. Maybe this whole Ishmael thing will work out. He's going to do this in a, in a few verses here. It's with you, and you will be the, the father of multitude of nations, no longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of multiple nations. There it is, the plural again. So now we see that God has changed Abram's name, which meant head or chief or just exalted father was his name, to meaning the exalted father of multitudes. <laughs> and he still doesn't have the, the promised child yet. And so uh, here God is on his way showing him what he's going to do before he does it. So the word choice um, recorded in the scripture here um, was inspired by God. This is what I'm going to do. This is before you even become this, have children to become this father of many nations, I'm going to change your name and give you a name that says that. Now, verses 6 through 8, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations, plural, of you. Kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you there, uh, through, throughout their generations and for everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Verse 8, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all of the land of Canaan, for the everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So great statement, especially when you go back to your original context with the, where this is written to. Um, this was, Moses was making sure that it was very clear. I will give you all of the land of the Canaanites. And so here it is um, in that reminder. Now, Almighty God emphasizes to this human father that many nations are going to come for you. So he changes his name to confirm that. This is going to happen. I want you to know this. I'm even change your name even though you don't have children. And as we think to the Think about this, what an important statement this is. Did he just change my name? Did he just change my name? <laughs> Did he just change? And everything was in the name, right? He just changed my name to a father of multiple nations. And he had to resonate and think about what God was doing there. 9 through 14, he begins to talk about circumcision. We won't read all that, but he's marking this, this group of people, setting them aside uh, for his beloved. Verse 15 is where we want to pick it up again. He reminds him, verse 16, that I, uh, verse, 
Verse 15, then the Lord said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, Sarai meant princes, right? She was a prince, princess, princess, excuse me. And, and the new name has more of a queen type to it. In fact, the queen of nations. So he's changing their names before they've ever produced a child of their own to fulfill the covenant. I think that's fascinating that he was doing that with them. And at the hearing, what's fascinating about this is that the hearing of this, notice Abraham falls to his face and laughs. Look at verse 16. Um, I will bless her indeed, I will bless her, and I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. I mean, we always remember Sarah laughed. Sometimes we forget he laughed. And, and, and in fact... It goes on, will a child, this is what he's reasoning in his heart, will a child be born of a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear children? And so you could see him doing the math. <laughs> and he's thinking about this. I'm going to be 100. If, if she got pregnant today, I'm going to be 100. And she is going to be 90. And in his human reasoning, it seemed impossible to lead to this, to this next statement. Look at verse 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, this is the second time he's done this. God, I'm doing the math, and this isn't working. And Ishmael's already having problems. We're going to see that he's a, you know, he's a little bully in camp and, and he's going to get booted out of camp here in the next couple of chapters um, with his mom. But um, he's already saying, well, if this could be, if, this, if Ishmael could do this, if Ishmael could love God and live for him, this could solve everything, Lord. You can see him again relying on the human effort that he came up with to produce this child. And I, and I love the words of God here in verse 19, really just one word, God said, no. And it's emphatic in the text. Almost a bit on the angered side. We've been over this four times now, I've appeared to you. I'm not taking your, your slave son, Eliezer. I'm not taking Ishmael, your child of your fleshly doing. I'm not taking them. I have a son for you. Now, with this, he reiterates, your wife, verse 19, Sarah, your wife. And I like that because God does not uh, entertain a second wife here. <laughs> he, he denotes your wife will bear you a son. There isn't, there isn't any discussion of it's coming from anybody else. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant from his descendants hereafter. So he's changed their names to be, mean father of many nations, queen or mother of many nations. He's already given a name to the child and there's no child in the womb. Because <laughs> he doesn't need that. He doesn't need evidence of something. <laughs> he knows what he's going to do. And yet there is difficulty in belief. I want to leave off here and turn 
quickly and just get a start on this on Galatians chapter 4. We'll come back to this as we work through 18 and 19 next week. But go to Galatians chapter 4 because there is a great lesson here when it comes to thinking about the doctrine of justification. And Paul does a phenomenal job with this. And the apostles can do this. We cannot. Uh, we cannot take stories out of the Old Testament and somehow uh, allegorize them into uh, whatever we want. Paul was writing by the inspiration of the Scripture, so I want to make that clear here. But he does such a great job with this to help us understand when we try to gain freedom from our fleshly work, we will find ourselves in bondage. When we go with God's plan and we, and we remove ourselves from any works for it, we find freedom. That's the, that's the story here of Galatians. Look at chapter 4, verse 21. And the, the point here, number 5, God's way means freedom and man's way means slavery. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So remember the whole context of Galatians. He's preached the gospel in South Galatia and all these people have come to Christ. And the churches are being formed there. But immediately upon their salvation... Um, Judaizers from Jerusalem hit the area and they begin to blast really the doctrine of justification, the pure doctrine that salvation comes through Christ alone, through faith alone, right? Through grace alone. And they begin to say, hey, look, you can believe in your Jesus, but you must keep these things. And so there was a compromise to the gospel to which Paul says, let them be anathemed if you touch the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's very, very emphatic about this. And you have to be. This is the hill we die on, right? You know, we can, you know, we can wrestle about, you know, do we pass the communion cups or let somebody get them? You know, or, you know <laughs> we can talk about that stuff all day long. But you die on these hills. And this is what Paul's going to do. And he says, do you want to be under the law? All right, let's work through this a little bit. So, so he sets forth now a discussion between the sons of the bondwoman and the sons of the free woman. In verse 21, Paul simply says that those who are turning back to the law of Moses as a job description or a way for salvation of how to earn freedom, they're never going to gain it. Look at verse 22 and verse 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman and one by a free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born, look at this phrasing here, according to flesh, human effort. You can write in your Bible there, human effort. And the, son, um, and the son by the free woman through the promise. So a great distinction between those two. And this is all tying back to Genesis 15 all the way through 21. And it was God's sovereign plan to give Abraham a son, an heir when it was, see when it was seemingly, now think about this, humanly impossible. Now think about salvation. Salvation is humanly impossible on your own. There is no possible way for a sinner to get to a righteous God. It is humanly impossible to get there. And when you develop religions, lifestyles, uh, theology that is dictated by human effort, you become a more of a slave than you ever were. He's showing if you turn from biblical justification, justification that comes through Christ alone, you will just find yourself in bondage. How many of us pastors have been with people from all kinds of faith that are passing away and their last statements are, I hope I've done enough. It's the most disparaging thing a pastor could ever hear at the death of somebody. 
They're still bond servants. They're still slaves. They're not free, and they're going to die as a slave. See, he's comparing the doctrine of justification with the doctrine of works. In chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah, when we think about Genesis 16, failed to put their faith alone in God's plan, and they take matters into their own hands, and, and the promise of freedom seems to kind of slip further away the more they try to, to do it themselves. Sarah gives her handmaiden to Abram. He has, she has a child, and now their freedom and the future of Israel has become more of a bondage to the future of Israel because of these things. Now you've created an arch enemy till the Lord returns because you tried to do it your way. Genesis 16, 15, the Bible says Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called his, his son Ishmael, and, and, um, and then life goes on from there, and we begin to see these problems. And here, look at verse 20, 23, that Ishmael was born according to the flesh, the Bible says. It means that he was a product of self-reliance. And Abraham ceased to rely on God's power to fulfill his word and instead relied on his own power to initiate a son. Fourteen years later, as we just worked into Genesis 17, we find ourselves in the middle of 16 and 19, and here God, re uh, God rejects Abraham's another attempt to gain his own freedom from the son of bondage. And what that reminds me, and I want you to think about this. There are times, you and I, even as believers, even we've seen God in the eyes of Christ, in the face of Christ, we stare into Christ through the word of God and we see God. There are times we'll lack in faith and we'll attempt to do things outside of his will. And, and when I study this, I begin to realize Abraham knew who God was. He's been a credit righteousness to him. But again, he tries to do something under his own strength and God must say to him, no, stop. This is why you're miserable. <laughs> you're not trusting me. And it's such a reminder of just Christian life. But, but here, Paul is bringing it into the doctrine of justification. And, when Isaac, and, and then he moves to Isaac as he looks at these two here. He says, one is born out of according to flesh and one is born according to the promise. So Isaac was not born according to the flesh because his birth was the result of the supernatural work of God. So he's making, Paul's making this great argument of justification. It's your salvation is supernatural. Just like the free woman had a child that she could never have on her own. She could have never produced this. Abraham and Sarah could never have produced this. But God did it. That's salvation. That's justification. If you want to keep working at this thing and putting your hand in it, you're going to be a slave and you'll die a slave. And he pounds this truth away within this text, trying to help the churches of Galatia understand that these people were coming to put them back into slavery, not to listen to them. And even Peter was deceived. You remember this, right? He's having a grand old time with the, with the Gentile Galatians, right? Oh, the elders from uh, Jerusalem just showed up. Mm. Sorry, Tom and Cheryl, we'll see you later. I'm going to go hang out with these guys because I don't want to associate with you in front of them. And man, does Paul get on him for that. Why? Because you're distorting justification, at least the view of it. You're distorting the doctrine of salvation. And so we'll, we'll finish this. I'm out of time. Oh, my goodness. Um, there's such a correlation to understanding this. And the great way the Bible is used by the inspired writers to help us understand what God was doing. 
Read the rest of this text. We'll come back. We'll finish Galatians 4, and then we'll jump back into 1819 uh, next week because we're going to take, the baby's going to come. The promise is there, but there's a little bit of a hiccup. Lot's back in trouble again. <laughs> and so we're going to see the pre-incarnate Christ probably show up in the trees of Mamre, have this conversation with Abram about what's Abraham, what's, what he's going to do, lets him haggle back and forth, and the end does what he's going to do anyway. It's an amazing story. And yet we will see how Christ preserves that line and preserves even enemies of Israel in a line through the Moabs. I mean, so amazing stuff. So keep, keep coming, right? We'll keep studying together and, and let God teach us these things. Father, thank you for time in your word. Oh, Lord, we're reminded here as we finish, the doctrine of justification is this beautiful thing because it's outside of our effort. It's alien to us. As Luther said, Lord. And that's why we can praise you because if it, we have our hand in it, Lord, we'll never know if we did enough. We'll always be struggling. And yet, Lord, also we learn from this text that in Genesis that there's times where we lack in faith. Here we are declared righteous, righteousness accredited to us, accounted to us. And at times we fail to believe your word. In fact, in times even believers act sinfully and cause great difficulties within our lives. And so, Lord, we know that you did a great work in saving us, Lord. May we allow that great justification that you did in our lives to motivate us to live daily lives that honor you that please you not because we have to but because we get to lord so lord strengthen us as we study together and may we not be just hearers only but be doers of the word of god lord father thank you for this church thank you for the heritage of teaching a pure doctrine of justification, may we adhere to that and continue to uphold the great supernatural work of salvation, taking dead people and making them alive eternally. This is a great news, Lord. May we share it with others. We praise you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.